Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to episode 63 of Conquering Columbus. We've got a great show lined up for you today with Mr. Alex Frohmeyer. And Alex has got some great things going on. He's the founder and CEO over at Beam Dental here in Columbus. Without giving too much away, Beam is a dental benefits company that's trying to shake up the dental insurance industry. And I definitely think you guys will learn a lot with this episode and hope you enjoy it. Before we get to that interview, though, guys, I want to take a moment and ask you all for a quick favor. Go ahead, pick up that phone of yours you were listening to this on and uh, check out your podcast app, whether it's iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, uh, whatever you like to listen on. Uh, there will be a subscribe button, and if you click that, it will make sure that you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. And the last thing we want to do before we start the show is take the time to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. All right, Conkers, that's all we got. Let's get this show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus, live from the new FMX offices in Grandview. And uh, we're real excited to have Alex Frohmeyer on the show, CEO and co-founder of Beam Dental. Uh, Alex is the CEO and co-founder of Beam Dental, a dental insurance agency here in Columbus. And uh, Beam is looking to change the dental insurance industry through their unique approach to dental insurance and rewarding people for healthy dental habits. Uh, before Beam, Alex was a founder and partner at Uproar Labs, an R&D company and incubator based in Louisville, Kentucky. So welcome to Conquering Columbus. Thanks Alex. for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, congratulations on the new office. Yeah, it's pretty exciting over here. It's been a lot yeah. of fun and pretty hectic, but uh, I think we're finally getting used to it. 
Yeah, it's always nice when you get something cool like this. You don't have to spend any of your own money. So it's right. like I get a new playground and it didn't cost me anything. Well put. Hopefully uh, Brian's not listening to this. <laughs> but kind of to kick things off, where we usually like to take it is we start back at the beginning and then we'll work our way up and talk about everything you have going on now. Yeah, sure. um, just kind of hear a little bit about your childhood and your story and your path to um, Louisville and, and starting your first company. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I grew up in... Um, and until th- so, I've lived in Columbus three years. So the uh, before three years ago, uh, had lived my whole life in Kentucky. So I grew up in the very very northern part of Kentucky, uh, just outside Cincinnati. Um, spent my first eighteen years there, and um, and among other things, developed a passion really on uh, really early on for building things. So at the time, I was obsessed with. We, I lived on a bunch of land, like seventy five acres or something, mostly woods. And so uh, I would go up into the woods my whole childhood, and then that turned into uh, stealing old lumber that my grandpa had and building tree houses. So I built like a whole neighborhood of tree houses in my uh, in the kind of like woods above uh, above our house, and uh, and it was for me like no nobody ever came. It was just like basically me uh, by myself because we lived in such kind of an isolated space in uh, outside of Cincinnati. But Kind of depressing. But. Yeah, it was a little <laughs> depressing. But every once in a while somebody would visit. I think the more important thing for me was that I got so much uh, joy out of uh, the process of building the treehouse. It wasn't really about, oh, I can have you know my buddies over and do a sleepover or I can watch TV in it or I can eat food in it or whatever. Uh, it wasn't really about what you did after you built it. It was the whole point was to build it, and and to plan for it and go go get the wood and find the right tree and then figure out how to get into the tree, which is always the hard part, and start kind of like executing a plan. So I thought that was always really fascinating. Um, that led me, I guess, fairly obviously into uh, engineering. So every time the kind of what are you going to be when you grow up conversation happened from probably 10 or 11 years old, um, I was saying that I was going to be um, a structural engineer because I wanted to build things like tree houses, but I wanted to build roads, bridges, buildings, all that stuff. Um, so by the time I actually got to engineering school, which was in Louisville, um, which would have been 06 when I was a freshman, um, I was not only interested in being a structural engineer, but very specifically wanted to go into uh, real estate development so I could be not just on the the building side of things, but also the business side of things as well. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. Um, so the big problem with that, so I was like interning at a construction company, getting all the experience, had this kind of life plan mapped out, um, which would culminate in me starting my own uh, real estate development company. Everything would be great. Um, the problem is in 08, when I was a junior, um, the entire market crashes led by real estate. Right, that was the that was the fundamental bubble um, that took a big chunk of the economy down. Um, so, almost overnight, real estate looked like uh, went from like this really really lucrative career to like holy shit, nobody's touching this stuff. Back to tree houses. Back to tree houses. <laughs> we all thought we were going to be living in tree houses, um, <laughs> and so so I was kind of left in this space where you know still nothing had changed about my passion or interest, but the market was kind of telling you like go start looking at other things to do. Uh, at the same time, of course, um, the one thing that was working and working well, especially for young people um, that were um, kind of looking in the high growth business space um, or entrepreneurship broadly was technology, right? So I had been, uh, but I think started increasing 
um, my look into the technology world. And I realized that all the same things that um, were true about building those tree houses and would have been true about building those buildings uh, was also true of a piece of software or hardware. There was still this you know, engineering-based, kind of wondrous uh, process of building something. It might be much smaller things than I was planning on, or virtual things even, but um, the process was the same. And so I realized that since I was actually <clears throat> most passionate about the process and not the output necessarily, that um, I could be just as happy playing in, in other markets and other spaces. Um, so it just so happened that my two best friends, uh, Dan Dykes and Alex Curry, uh, and I were already you know, in classes together, working together in engineering school, and, uh, and they turned into my co-founders. So they had been um, really, they had been kind of watching my journey and I think were really ambitious and uh, interested in uh, being entrepreneurs. I think we had all assumed for a long time that, you know, and certainly the people that we were around growing up, nobody started a company until they were like, you know, it, either ever or when they were like 45, right? That was like your second career or something. You know, once you had experience, mm -hmm. then you'd go, you were, you know, were good enough, you were qualified to be an entrepreneur. And so I think we, after seeing some examples um, during that time, you know, a Mark Zuckerberg type who was our age of uh, starting his own company was like just wildly fascinating. And so we started kind of going from like, oh yeah, wouldn't it be fun if, you know, one day we're all 40, we can get together and start a company to like, holy shit, we should do this right now. Uh, so we started our first uh, business out of, um, I think it was our senior year, so we were still undergrads, um, which was essentially an R&D company. Um, so we were um, building whatever you hired us to build. We were doing websites, we were doing apps, we were doing um, a lot of hardware because our kind of like core expertise um, was custom electronics design, uh, Wi-Fi um, and Bluetooth-based products. Um, and so we were doing uh, that stuff as contract labor for um, other R&D companies, labs, uh, manufacturing companies, um, and then for ourselves. We were also trying to build our own products, um, and that eventually led us uh, to be. So what would that pitch and process look like in the early stages of that in terms of finding customers to do the R&D from taking the idea and then figuring out if it's something that you were actually capable of executing on? Yeah, um, yeah, good question. And that was actually a really challenging piece of the puzzle. I was, uh, from day one, I was kind of our, our business guy. So I essentially did everything except um, uh, the vast majority, at least, of the hardcore engineering. So it was my job to do the marketing, sales, uh, biz dev, and then all the kind of back-end accounting, keeping the books, keeping the lights on, uh, admin work. And, uh, and so my sales process, you know, early on was... You know, please talk to me, and if you talk to me, we'll be like the cheapest um, engineers you can possibly hire. I mean, that was like essentially how we started winning contracts because we were, I think we were 20, we were either 20 or 21 when we started our first company, and so a lot of it was just like people would hire us out of like pity, probably, <laughs> which we were, we didn't care. We were like, that's fine. Um, pay us whatever you can afford or whatever you want to. Um, and so we did some stuff pro bono. Just, just to kind of prove that we weren't complete idiots and then, you know, uh, kind of moved up to minimum wage from there and then maybe something beyond that later on. Uh, but a big piece of the puzzle was um, 
uh, me just networking my ass off to find uh, folks that needed things built. And uh, so where there would be, you know, good timing, somebody needs a project, and then uh, voila, we pop up. Um, combined with um, trying to, ref over time, kind of refine um, the, pro the sales process a bit so that we weren't um, going to get caught in too many um, um, kind of crazy inventor conversations because we had tons of those. So just be kind of by exposing ourselves uh, to the market, you kind of naturally attract um, folks that have, you know, just like ridiculous ideas and not like ridiculous, that's awesome, let's work on it type ideas, but ridiculous, like you want to create a perpetual motion machine and, um, you know, and you, you just have like nothing beyond some idea about how you're going to like bend fundamental physics or something. And so we had to kind figure of, it out when you get there. It's R and D. Yeah. Right? And that's what it was. Right. And so, but it just didn't have the, you know, billion dollar budget that it needed. Right. Um, I guess. Um, so there was, there was something missing on either end of the equation, I guess. Um, but you know, for us, it was a lot, a lot of the process was about finding, um, uh, folks that were, you know, qualified and serious, um, that we could then learn from. Cause that was of course a big part of the point was, um, that we were learning as much as we were um, trying to build a business. What, yeah. what were some of those first projects that you guys were working on? Yeah. Um, honestly, there were uh, the, the, the first and most interesting um, serious projects were around uh, medical device design and development. So that was a big piece of what we ended up doing, um, partially because we were super interested by the intersection of healthcare and technology and so um, that makes a ton of sense in retrospect with what beam does now uh, focusing on the dental piece of healthcare but at the time uh, we were just kind of really fascinated by medical devices because they were um, so specific um, and typically so um, uh, R&D intensive there was just a lot to admire about the engineering in the same way that you know you see a really amazing app today and you're like holy shit there's just you know, so many features and these features are amazing. I remember the first time I was using Uber and was just blown away by like, how the fuck did they coordinate all these cars and all these riders and the app isn't crashing every 10 seconds. And it was just like amazing that they had figured out how to make that, um, the process of hailing a car that simple and intuitive. And so we looked at a lot of um, medical devices the same way, like, how is this possible? Um, and so that was what we ended up doing. So we were working for uh, labs that were associated with the university. Um, so they were nearby and kind of easy to, you know, get our foot in the door uh, since we were students. Um, and that, that ended up working uh, actually quite well for a um, year, year and a half when we were getting off the ground. And so what was your vision for Upper Labs when you started it? I mean, did you always expect to go into a different industry and shift or did you have you know, maybe a five-year plan saying, hey, this is where we want to be um, with this business? It would be tough to, it would be tough to truthfully say that there was a huge vision. I mean, I think a lot of our, if, if you were to probably rewind to the very beginning um, on day one and ask us what our vision was, I think our ultimate goal was to not have to take big boy jobs <laughs> upon graduation because I think we were like we were seniors we were either like late junior year or early senior year and so a lot of it was um, through some internships that we had all done 
um, earlier in undergrad, we had gotten exposure to the you know types of companies and jobs that we would be working when we graduated, and we were like, oh, we do not want to do this. And so I think a lot of it was how do we avoid uh, working um, for uh, you know these types of jobs at these types of companies, and um, and so I think that was that was probably as far as we were looking into it. So I think the experiment was, hey, if we can win enough you know contracts and make enough money um, to kind of make a comparable or even somewhat comparable salary to what we would make um, you know just taking this kind of convenient uh, job that appears post-graduation um, then we'll call that a win right that could buy us some time and maybe we can figure out our own product or our own um, thing that we could build uh, that could then take the next step so I think we always wanted to build our own products um, but not knowing much about how to do that and certainly not having some like light bulb flashes on idea at the time. It was mostly about, I think, buying time and not taking um, a serious job. Yeah, I mean, that's that's good enough reasoning for me. I think that's... that's... It, was, it was great. I mean, I remember like very specifically, you know, n- needing, I mean, a big motive on how I was selling um, and, and winning contracts was based on having a ton of adrenaline around not losing my co-founders because I was um, very convinced uh, that if uh, the sur- the R&D services business didn't work out and they were like, all right, we're not making enough money, it's not going to work, I'm going to go take, you know, kind of the tried and true job at the oil refinery or at the you know, med device business or GE or whatever, um, I didn't think I would ever be able to claw them back out. Um, and so I, early on, I was like, we'll do whatever it takes to just like keep the wheels on because if we buy enough time, then you know, then I can, that gets me enough time so I can invent something essentially. Right. Yeah. And so what did the next couple of years with Upper Labs look like? How long were you guys there before, you know, making this move to Columbus and starting Beam Dental? So we uh, had actually started Beam before, uh, in Louisville, before we moved to Columbus. Um, we ran um, in kind of the services space until about uh, 2012. And that's when um, I think a, a few things came together, including a contract we were working on that was for a dental company. Um, my sister was finishing up dental school and becoming a dentist. One of my other co-founders, uh, his mom is a dental hygienist. Um, and so that was, you know, the, so we had kind of these influences around us. They were all kind of like nudging us in the direction of looking at the dental industry specifically. And so we started actually specifically um, researching and targeting uh, the dental space to see kind of what was there. And so we had come up with the concept for um, the initial version of Beam, which was mostly focused on the idea of taking your common everyday toothbrush, um, but connecting it to the internet so you could get uh, data to come off of it with um, this you know, extremely common yet unquantified and un in a, in, in a non-understood health metric being what is the value of brushing your teeth like from a health perspective. Um, we had kind of come up with that as a really interesting thing to think about and potentially build because if you rewind to that uh, moment in time, it was just, it had just become possible to even build something like a connected toothbrush in the past couple years before that. So maybe only since 2010 was it even physically possible. 
Um, and so we were probably thinking about it in 2011, 2012 timeframe. Uh, so the infrastructure had finally like made that possible. The cost of sensors, the cost of connectivity, um, the uh, the mobile the um, uh, mobile phone penetration that could support uh, those protocol, whether it's blue, uh, Bluetooth or Wi-Fi, like all that stuff was basically uh, brand new. And so we had you know already seen uh, companies like Wythings, uh, Jawbone, and probably most notably Fitbit. Um, really like taking advantage of um, the core hardware infrastructure. So we're like, oh, we can just do this, but apply it to the dental industry. And then the data that it throws off, um, if it's interesting, we can then apply that to um, dental insurance companies and they can then figure out how to um, uh, create uh, actuarial models that'll make dental insurance way more affordable. Um, people that are brushing their teeth every day uh, probably cost less at the dentist and people that don't probably cost more, right? And so we kind of intuitively understood that if we could build the core infrastructure, there would be value to that data. Um, what we didn't know at the time was that um, we were going to have to build the entire insurance company too. Um, we were planning on selling a product and a service and a data stream to the insurance companies and let them run with it from there. Uh, but it turns out none of them were, I think, quite prepared for what we had built. And so we did kind of the heavy lifting to build our core infrastructure um, in 2012, 2013, um, and had kind of hit a, you know, a, a brick wall when it came to getting insurance companies to pony up uh, and uh, let us become a vendor partner, essentially. Um, and so that's when we met. Uh, drive capital, uh, and that's ultimately what got us to uh, to Columbus in 2014. So you talk a little bit about that process. I mean, you have an interesting business model for the sense that the R&D process is usually like the most capital extensive for most mm -hmm. companies that are starting up, and you guys were the R&D process, which is pretty cool. But when you were first getting shut down by these insurance companies, kind of what was their initial rebuttal to you, and um, how did you guys leverage that once you met Drive? Did Drive kind of instill the idea into you that, hey, we have the capital, and this is the direction that you need to pivot, or... Did you come to them with the idea already? Yeah. Um, so he here's what we had heard from um, the you know the insurance uh, companies. Um, we were able to get in the door of most of the major players in the industry, which um, which kind of gave us, I think, a real sense of where the market was at at the time. Um, everybody was super fascinated by what we were doing, um, but um, you know, very little happens in dental insurance that's new, interesting, different, and innovative. And because of that, most of these companies were not, um, uh, they weren't ready um, by a, a variety of definitions. They don't have, you know, venture funds built into um, their companies that are ready to go, that are looking actively for innovation, and they don't have an initiative in the business, which is let's find and implement innovative things. They don't have the IT infrastructure to handle innovative things when they come along. They don't, they aren't used to acquiring companies. They aren't uh, really used to partnering with companies. It's just not what they've built into their business models. Now, this is, you know, 2013 and 2014 when we're doing this. I would say the whole idea of corporate participation in innovation has drastically changed in just the three, four years. Um, uh, since we were doing it. Not necessarily in dental insurance, but you can observe um, tons of traditional um, insurance companies and just uh, broad, just the Fortune 500. 
many of them are now actively looking to partner with startups. They're acquiring startups. They're building little like Skunk Works um, um, innovation labs inside of their companies. They're using it to recruit and retain and uh, you know better talent. It's now very trendy. At the time, virtually non-existent. Um, so if you just look in Columbus, um, Wendy's has recently built um, a test lab and is building apps and all kinds of stuff on Ohio State's campus. Um, Cardinal Health has a group called Fuse that's like an innovation lab built inside of Cardinal Health and they're actively spinning out and funding uh, concepts from, uh, from inside. Um, uh, Nationwide has a hundred million plus uh, venture fund now that's uh, new within the past couple of years uh, and certainly one of the biggest in, of, of the major insurance companies. Um, and there, there are probably many more examples, but that's just kind of like, you know, locally, this is all stuff that's happened just in the past couple of years. So we kind of hit the brick wall because we were just kind of too early to that era, essentially. Um, but then when we met, um, we met Drive, um, they, you know, we, we had a funny story. We had met at a Kentucky Derby party. So I met two of the partners who had been invited to Louisville, where the Kentucky Derby is every year. And... Um, and uh, so we bumped into uh, these two partners at, at a party uh, before uh, the Derby. And that happens every year. And so uh, and we were raising at the time, so it ended up being a bit serendipitous that we met them and certainly weren't expecting that like they were going to come to us. Usually you have to go to the, the VCs. Um, so we uh, bumped into these two partners, pitching the idea, and they were like, Oh, okay, toothbrush is interesting, a little weird, what's going on? Internet of Things, oh, that's pretty cool. Data, yeah, interesting, definitely a lot happening there. And then I said, oh yeah, and you know, one day we could build um, an insurance company around this. And like, you know, spun on a heel like, did you say insurance? Um, and it turns out uh, the context that I didn't know at the time was that Drive had been actively um, researching and ultimately looking for a you know disruptive um, innovative idea inside of the insurance space now they weren't specifically looking in the dental insurance space because why would you um, but they were looking for ideas inside the insurance market um, that could uh, that they could build an insurance company um, with and so when I came in and presented um, essentially the bare bones of uh, an idea to turn into an insurance company using this unique infrastructure, uh, it ended up being kind of a perfect fit. Um, and so that's what moved us to Columbus, um, but also then really kick-started our capability to build um, uh, the insurance company, which we, which we had to do from scratch. And I want to talk a little bit more soon on what you guys are doing today and like what the future looks like in your current position, but I kind of want to get a little bit more granular too into the exact data and specifics that you were pitching the insurance companies and then how you guys leveraged that to actually create the idea around insurance company. I guess I'm kind of lost in that transition. Uh, so how we got, so what we were pitching and then um, how we translated it to? To knowing that you needed to create an insurance company. Out of yeah, that. I think a lot of it. So, I mean, uh, you know, what we were essentially pitching um, the insurance companies is that we'll give you, so you've got all these insurance subscribers already. Um, but what you don't know uh, is what you don't know about them, right? And 
and the, and that's I mean critical, right? I mean insurance right. insurance is the original um, data company. Mm -hmm. I mean for a hundred years, insurance companies have uh, thrived on the quality of their data. Now, early on, so let's say seventy years ago, insurance companies didn't need much data to be powerful in terms of their insights because there wasn't much data to get. And so as long as they had something, they had more than the rest of us. Now the world is exploding with data, right? Um, and now insurance companies find themselves in some ways at a major disadvantage from what um, others can glean about their own customers and their own markets. So consider, for example, um, uh, just being theoretical Amazon. So Amazon knows everything we've purchased ever, right, for the past 10 years. So wouldn't Amazon be um, highly qualified and capable to insure your um, property? Because they know exactly what property you have. So like, for example, if you were to uh, buy a renter's insurance policy through Amazon um, and you got robbed and you said, oh my God, I got robbed, I lost $400,000 worth of stuff, Amazon can go, mm, that seems unlikely because you've only bought about $20,000 worth of stuff through us in the past five years. And we know that we account for like 50% of all e-commerce transactions. So unless you've bought a bunch of stuff not through us, we're pretty sure you're lying, right? That would be way more granular uh, understanding than what a renter's policy uh, functions today if you buy one from Nationwide. Nationwide's going to go, yep, well, I guess we lost $400,000. Too bad, right? <laughs> Better luck next time. Go back to the actuarial tables, right? So you're talking about a whole new feed of data that doesn't exist in the space, right? And so essentially what I was going to dental insurance companies with is an equivalent idea, which is we know that taking care of your teeth is the number one predictor every day, you know, brushing, flossing, et cetera. It's the number one predictor of whether or not you're going to have dental disease in the future. And every study that's ever been done on the space proves that to be true. Uh, however, you don't know if people are actually taking care of their teeth or not until they show up to the dentist. And so do you want to find out about somebody's problems once they go to the dentist and you're getting dinged with claims? Or do you want to know ahead of time? And theoretically, they would have said, we'd love to know ahead of time and we're happy to pay for it. Um, where they couldn't connect dots is around um, how to work with our technology and the infrastructure, like, I mean, just from like a tactical perspective. Mm -hmm. And then also uh, figuring out how to build um, the, the, that data stream and those costs because there's, you know, hard costs involved, toothbrushes um, mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, and then shipping and packaging and all these things. So, you know, being able to like, physically move infrastructure into everybody's house is actually a lot harder than it seems. Right. And so that's when we realized that we had to, you know, we had to figure out that answer and then figure and then ultimately figure it out for ourselves because we were going to build our own infrastructure around it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So if I sign up for Beam Dental today, how does that toothbrush get to my house? Do I have to pay for the toothbrush? Is it, um, is it connected to an app? How are you guys tracking that data? So um, here's the way it works today. So we sell um, a group policy. So we, we would sell to your business. Mm -hmm. um, so we would sell through your employee, uh, through your employer who's going to have um, an employee-sponsored uh, dental plan. Um, so we'll install that for all the employees. Everybody who elects um, to have dental insurance at the company 
um, then gets to pick out um, as part of their enrollment process, gets to pick out the color of brush they want and where to send it. So people mostly pick their uh, just home address. And so we take that data um, and send it to our manufacturing facility, which is in uh, the Dayton area. Um, and so we build all of our own brushes and we also do toothpaste, floss, and our own replacement heads uh, for the brushes. So uh, we'll take uh, the orders, um, fill out, um, do all the packaging, fulfillment, et cetera, put it on a truck, um, UPS, and then lands at your house um, in the color that you specified within about a week of your insurance going live. So typically insurance policies start on the first of a month. And so if your insurance policy was going uh, live uh, yesterday, the first of uh, August, um, you would be getting your shipment sometime here in the next few days. Um, you would pop your package open when you get it. You're gonna have um, tube of toothpaste, uh, spool of floss, and then you're gonna have your brush. Uh, first thing you'll do is download our Android or iOS app and then via Bluetooth connect the brush to your phone and that's what allows data to not only be uh, for display for you, same way you get you know, Fitbit with an app that's uploading all of its data, uh, but then that's also hitting our server and forms um, part of how we do our uh, underwriting and uh, pricing model. So part of the resistance that I would imagine would pop into my head was the, be the ability to get them to download the app once they actually get the device oh, sure. and then yeah. keep it hooked up via Bluetooth. Have you guys ran into those issues and kind of how are you working your ways around them? Yeah, so um, so there are people that um, don't want to engage at all um, because they are, um, you know, uh, skeptics of technology broadly or, you know, feel like it's a very big brother, um, which I've always found um kind of adorable in a way uh, because you know these are the same people that get on Facebook every day and they don't think that Facebook's big brother and they don't think that Google's big brother <laughs> which is unbelievable right right um, and they wonder about how that how that like, ad for that thing I just looked up is right. suddenly popping up in my Facebook yeah. feed <laughs> so we may be more like obvious I guess but I would just call that transparency um, but yeah so you know you've got a group of people that just don't want to engage at all which is totally fine with us um, you've got a group of folks um, that are difficult to get engaged, which means downloading the app, connecting it, etc. And then you've got a group of folks that are difficult to keep engaged, um, which means uh, syncing data, uh, returning to the app every once in a while to um, you know, update account info, all that stuff. And then you've got a group that's fantastic, highly engaged, wants to participate, etc. So I, I think um, I don't. I think that we don't think that the long-term, um, you know, solution for how this, um, how our business model will work and how business models like it um, will be the way it's um, um, architected today, um, principally because getting folks to download and engage with apps um, on a year-over-year -year basis is getting harder and harder and harder. Um, so all the data shows us that uh, people are using uh, less apps every year. And so there's been this like massive consolidation. So if you look at like the number of uh, like monthly active users of uh, apps, it's just this like hilarious asymptote. Um, you know, WhatsApp, Messenger, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Snapchat, and like three other things make up like 85% of all minutes spent in um, mobile app environments, right? And then it's just like this huge tail to everything else. And so if you're 
anyone else other than like five companies, um, you're really struggling to get massive adoption and um, and then persistence inside those cycles. And so we, you know, have, you know, we we um, you know care about it and we get a ton of data and it's highly valuable to the business. But at the same time, we know that if we want to kind of turn things up to 100%, um, it's really like kind of higher level core infrastructure that'll change. And so ultimately that means a few things, but one of them is probably that um, asking people to download apps and um, engage with them routinely isn't going to be a big part of how it works in the future. Yeah, I know, because like thinking about getting an, an iWatch or something like that, like it's a really cool concept. It's like something that I, I've sat down and thought about personally, and then I was like, I just can't handle another thing that charges and rings hanging around my body yeah. anymore. It's just too much. Sure, and everybody's in a little bit different place on that curve. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, when we're thinking about it and trying to answer to where the market's headed, you know, we know that we can't live in the world of early adopters forever, right? And so to the extent that, you know, we feel highly successful in um, our engagement metrics and what's going on um, so far in the business today, we know that when it comes time to, you know, engage, you know, grandma, it's a totally different build, right? You're building everything differently to account for, um, less tech savvy users, people that aren't going to um, uh, pay a premium in their dollars or time or resource to uh, work with your product, people that want to do as little as possible instead of as much as possible. And that's, and that's how, you know, these are the kind of issues with scale, right? And so that's why we spend a lot of time admiring products that have figured out how to kind of grow beyond those kind of core user sets. Um, and then and what can we learn, right? How can we, you know, Fitbit figured this out, right? They went from sports enthusiasts only, um, so maybe like hardcore athletes, and then maybe they had a group of people that love quantifying things about their body in general. So they were, you know, stepping on connected scales every day and, you know, were you know, dieting, and so they were measuring all their calories. So they were like, that was the Fitbit core user. But then they figured out how to get to your dad, who's like, you know, goes for a walk three times a week, right? But loves counting his steps, right? Like, how did they do that? Um, that's what's impressive about products like that and ecosystems like that. Yeah, and I guess my question would be, um, why did you choose to target businesses and group insurance rather than individuals? Because it seems like if I were an individual who, you know, brushes my teeth every morning, flosses every morning, every night, I'd be inclined to go to you guys and say, okay, hey, I want right. to save money on my, right. my dental insurance. I'd love to do this. Sure. So. Um, easiest answer is um, that the 92% uh, of all dental insurance is sold through employers today. Um, so that's where the market's at. Now, I think it's going to change, and, and I hope we're the reason why it changes, right? Because I think the use case that you just described is super intuitive, and I think it makes a lot of sense for how um, we think too. Um, uh, you know, in the same way that if you are a spectacularly safe driver who's barely ever driving, right? So, like, oh, I go to the grocery store once a week, I, but I work from home, you know, so I go to the grocery store, I go um, to my favorite restaurant three miles away once a week, and um, I visit my parents who live 10 minutes away. So I'm in the car three times a week. Why would I pay full price for uh, auto insurance policy the same as the guy that's commuting an hour and a half every day, right? 
And so if people are, you know, and so that's why there is no now, you know, auto insurance um, uh, innovation happening kind of around that idea, which is pay per mile that you drive or pay based on your actual risk, which is partially based on how often you're in a car. Um, and so I think, you know, that's a very intuitive way to think about it and probably, you know, um, a, a market that we're going to look to exploit at some point. So beam dentures, I'll just go ahead and pitch you. Yeah, okay. And then we take them out, we charge them with the same thing we use our iPhone. Yeah. You put them back in your mouth, you track everything they do, everywhere they go. They have no idea. They're I all like people. It. They're all. <laughs> they have no idea. And then you just, you make a lot of money. I like it. Well, hopefully in. nothing malfunctions. Uh, <laughs> so if you get a fire in the mouth, well, I mean, you're gonna you're gonna get a couple casualties. I'm not saying it's perfect. Yeah. The other thing I'd be concerned about is that that data is only useful for about ten years or so if you're really targeting you're right. old people. So unless we start living longer, maximize those ten years. Uh, you'd be surprised at the things over over the years that uh, people have suggested. So beam dentures is actually uh, not even in the most ten percent crazy up here. So, <laughs> right. As long that. as I can stay under ten percent crazy, I think right. that's where I shine. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. We've we've heard so, some weird ones. One aspect, though, like just the aspect of creating raving fans, because I love the idea behind it. I love the idea that if I was to have data pushing out about the way I was brushing my teeth, I could lower my insurance rates. And I feel like the world knows everything about you, anyways. So at at my age and and my um, ability to kind of understand the way the direction is going, like it's not something that scares me. So I think like. It's the per like perfect idea. It's just creating those raving fans. It seems like it's where you guys is trying to figure out that hurdle. Is that is that kind of where you're at now? Then uh, it hasn't been a hurdle. I mean, I think um, you know, uh, for us, it's about um, you know we have what we want today from a engagement perspective, data perspective, uh, and then certainly there's a lot of things beyond the um, the brush and what the brush is doing that make up the product and how it works because keep in mind the core use case for dental insurance is going to the dentist so there's this whole cycle around building um, networks of dentists and uh, managing claims and support and service for the members and for the brokers that manage the plans and so there's a lot of infrastructure there um, that all has to have really high ratings because you can't you know go to the dentist and then the dentist um, doesn't get their claim paid for six months and so that you know there's all kinds of uh, um, uh, you know features and interactions with us and a variety of different folks in the value chain and so you know from our perspective we've got um, more or less exactly what we want today the challenges that we face as a business and just kind of where we're at is around uh, scale. So how can you keep growing but maintain those quality interactions? Um, and as we scale, we're also gonna bump up against um, more uh, difficult customers to please. So a lot of the people that are um, buying our product and engaging with us today are the early adopter types and the, um, the innovators, people that have some leash. They're used to you know, this thing breaking or that thing not working out quite as right as they wanted to or being a little bit disappointed with how something went down. So there's leash there and you can get away with a lot. Um, but as you become a big boy company, things go from uh, a little leash to no leash, right? And then you're just, you're, you have to deliver everything on time, the exact way the customer expects and then hopefully also beat their expectation every time or it's a huge nightmare and so you know companies that we look to are you know 
how Amazon does customer support, how Facebook has never crashed ever, how uh, Uber has this intuitive uh, user interface um, on their app. You know, those are the things that we're like, oh my God, this is amazing. And you know, how can we translate those ideas or those techniques into what we're doing? Yeah, and you know, it's funny. I've never thought about how incredible it is that Facebook has never, never crashed. crashed. Right? Ever. I mean, imagine all the users, all the sites, all the pages that are being created constantly on it. Never been hacked, never crashed. Yeah, it's, that is some really impressive stuff. But Two billion users. <laughs> but not uh, bad. What, yeah, not, not bad. Hackering Columbus websites never crashed. Right. We've got, you know, maybe. <laughs> we don't, don't have know. to put numbers on the users, yeah, but right, right, right. Right. I mean, it's a fact. <laughs> it's a fact. I'll, I'll just refer back to the scale discussion. So bring it, bring it Zuckerberg. <laughs> but uh, what I wanted to ask was. Um, what do your goals look like and your team's goals for the next five to ten years for Beam? And what do you anticipate being the biggest challenges? Um, so goals, um, I think, you know, you know, for us, you know, one of the foundational reasons that I kind of glossed over uh, earlier when describing it, one of the foundational reasons that we wanted to start the company in the first place was because when looking at um, the dental industry, there's this really glaring um, uh, statistic that I found uh, that, you know, is still, I think, re- really just, it really describes why we're here. Um, there's about 115 million Americans that don't have dental insurance today. It's about 40% of the country. And that's a massive number. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we had, um, and keep in mind when we were, kind of doing this 2011, 2012, 2013, you know, a big topic um, in the country at the time was around the Affordable Care Act. Obamacare had, you know, that was a huge initiative when Obama took office. I think that it was passed in 09 and then really started kind of like ramping up in 2010, 2011, 2012. And so this whole idea, and so the national discussion happening at the time was that there was this, you know, national tragedy which was how many uninsured Americans there were with, with health care. And the numbers were around, it's, it was around 40 million people at the time. And, and, and people, uh, you know, many proponents of the Affordable Care Act today say that the fundamental success of, the, uh, of Obamacare is that the uninsured rate's down to like 15 million or something from 40 to 45 which is unbelievable, right? Like getting that many people through exchanges and signed on to plans and being able to see uh, doctors and have coverage is remarkable. And so now they're in that kind of like the hardest 15 million people to get, right? Um, but the f- shrinking the number from 40 to 15 was considered this like huge achievement. And so we were looking at it at the same time in the dental industry and we're like, oh my God, it's like, three times as many people um, that don't have dental insurance. And so, you know, that still is really the kind of ultimate goal of the business is to make healthcare uh, and dental care specifically more accessible and more affordable. And so we think our technology and our data can ultimately help unlock value for people such that folks that um, couldn't justify having dental insurance, even though they want it, like dental insurance is a highly like understood and sought after uh, product, but people w- just will not um, or cannot afford um, to participate in a plan um, unless it's um, usually sponsored by an employer. 
So when we look at that, we say um, there's a clear opportunity here um, to take the fact that everybody wants dental insurance, everybody has teeth, everybody has um, uh, a need or an interest in visiting a dentist at some point. So ideally everyone has coverage. If you ask them, do you want dental insurance or not, everybody says yes. Um, so figuring out how to connect a market desire to a product or a service that makes sense and is delivered at the right price point is really the kind of puzzle to unlock. And so we think we've got at least the beginnings of the idea on how to solve that at scale. Uh, but where we want the company to be five years, ten years from now is ultimately making a dent in that uninsured population. That's when we know we'll, we're like winning, I guess. And I think everything you guys have going on is exciting. It sounds like the direction you're headed is going to be prosperous, and you guys got some great minds behind you at Drive, and I'm sure um, on your team. How many members do you have on your team right now? About uh, 17 on the team 17. today. Yeah. And then do you have future growth numbers over the next year or two, or is it just kind of? Not really that far out. I mean, we have a handful of uh, positions open today um, in engineering and uh, sales um, that um, probably mean we'll have 20 to 22 on the team by the end of the year. Um, but uh, that's about as far out as we can see right now, I would say. Definitely. So, you know, as we kind of start to wrap up here, I think one of the last questions we always like to ask is centers around our theme of our show, which is live uncomfortably. And it means a lot of different things to me and Josh, but we just We're in a to, small room right now. Right, we are in a small Windowless room. Windowless room. <laughs> and... Uh, we wanted to hear what you thought of the phrase, what, what it made you think of in your life, and how it applies to your story. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's many different uh, ways you can live uncomfortably. And, you know, it obviously the, the, the theme in general is touched on a lot in the startup world. I do think there's a lot of misconception about what um, uh, entrepreneurship is and certainly how people apply it from a lifestyle perspective, um, which we were victim to as well. So I went through a whole period uh, when we were doing our first company uh, since you know I was still a full-time engineering student. I was um, working uh, two part-time jobs and then trying to start a company that I was super passionate about. So I wanted all my time to be going to the company. And, um, and as such, something had to lose with my time and so I just stopped sleeping and so I was like having fun trying to figure out how to sleep less every day and was getting it down into the four hour range and, um, and it was incredibly unhealthy and so then like over time you know just stuff started breaking in my life as a result of kind of the inevitability of what happens when you don't sleep enough and but for like too long I don't know how long let's call it 18 months I was like you know, wearing it as a badge of honor, like, oh my God, look at how little I sleep. I'm amazing. I work so hard. Look at all the things I can accomplish in a day because, um, because, <laughs> because I'm not sleeping. And, uh, you know, what I realized is that, you know, when, when you talk about something like living uncomfortably, a lot of people say, oh, that's living uncomfortably. Well, that's still living stupid. I mean, that's not productive. Something, you're not going to be as productive as you um, think you are. You're going to end up wasting a lot of time because you aren't uh, alert and with it, you're going to make mistakes that you um, don't need to make, and um, and there's a ton of value and focus anyway. And so you know you know we should have uh, approached our whole lifestyle differently at that point. And so I think we, uh, my co-founders and I, have spent a lot of time over the past few years making sure that we are as people 
um, uh, together. And that means, you know, we're sleeping right, uh, eating right, have healthy kind of personal lives and some sense of work-life balance. So the point isn't that we're like just drilling hours into a hole. We love to work, so we do a lot of it if you're counting the hours, but we don't count the hours. What we do is we worry about output. We worry about being as productive as humanly possible so we can reach our goals faster and better. And so to me, living uncomfortably is really, it's less, it's certainly less of a physical state. It's more of a, um, uh, a philosophical approach, which is about playing at the edge of your um, intuition and your actual knowledge base. So I think um, one of my favorite um, demonstrations of uh, knowledge came from um, an old Carl Sagan thing that he used to do in the probably the 80s. Um, but he described, um, and I think maybe Neil deGrasse Tyson's done this since, but I think it's a really great way to think about things from a visual perspective. So um, uh, Carl would ask you to, um, you know, picture a circle, and then everything inside the circle is everything you know. It's your knowledge base, and so and so if you know less, the circle's smaller. If you know more, the circle's bigger, and everybody's circle is a different size. That's not important. The edge of the circle um, is essentially your ignorance, right? Because everything outside the circle is stuff you don't know, and the smarter you are, the bigger your circle is, but you're also increasing the amount of stuff that you don't know, or you're, you're touching up against more that you don't know. And so there's this really clean way to think about how as your knowledge grows, your awareness of your ignorance also grows. And so I think at the time he was using it to demonstrate just like the stuff we don't know about the universe, because he was obsessed with pretty much, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, helping all of us understand just the scale of the universe and how, um, how little we know about it. Um, but I think it applies to um, our lives too. So, you know, we work on um, every day figuring out how to make that circle a little bit bigger. And then also kind of you're simultaneously humbled by, oh, now I just realized I don't know more stuff. And then that makes you hungrier to go build that circle bigger. So to me, that's like, that's the, un the fun uncomfortable or the correct uncomfortable is figuring out how to, you know, understand the growth of that circle and then uh, be super um, um, disappointed that there's all this stuff I still don't know. Definitely. I think that's a really good place to wrap up. Do you have anything uh, let up? Ooh. <laughs> you have anything left you want to say to our listeners? That's all I got, but thank you for having me. Uh, appreciate yeah. it. Thanks a lot for yeah. uh, joining the show, Fro. And uh, guys, that was Alex Frohmeyer, the CEO and co-founder over at Beam Dental. We hope you guys learned a lot about the dental industry and what they've got going on over there. If you enjoyed that episode, share it with your friends, and we will talk to you guys next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you.
Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.